everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz bringing you another Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine interview for the Speaking with Leaders that I did. Ooh, it was actually May 20th, 2016, and I actually traveled to the University of Maryland Medical Center where I interviewed Dr. Susan Wolfstall, who is the program director of the internal medicine training program there for numerous years. I think you'll really enjoy this interview, and if you're on SoundCloud, I've uploaded a picture of Edgar Allan Poe's grave site, which is in a churchyard right across the street from University of Maryland Medical Center. Beautiful little churchyard. I sort of stumbled across this grave site because I got to the interview early, and uh, it was a beautiful day, so I took a walk in the churchyard. Anyway, you'll enjoy this one. Hope you've had a chance to listen to the interview with Dr. Kelly Scaff, Jen Kogan, and Joe Lascalzo. Those are all available on Mountain Lion Podcasts. Have a great day, and if you have any feedback on this interview, feel free to email me or to put your comments into iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, as they like to say. Have a nice day. So tell me a little bit about what your, just briefly about what your current position is. So I am internal medicine program director, done that since 1992. I took on also the title of associate chair for education, whenever that was in my CV, I don't remember. It's probably also back in the 90s or perhaps the early 2000s. And that gave me more of a purview over the fellowship programs, um, and also some oversight over the clerkship, both the medicine clerkship as well as the sub-internship in internal medicine. But that title of associate chair has kind of taken my program directing and, and made it much more broad. So in addition to all the things we have to do to be an internal medicine program director, I work with the hospital in many ways, whether it has to do with throughput and how that may or may not affect the residents. Um, patient safety and quality improvement, I'm more peripheral to that, but very, very aware of what they're doing. So a lot of the traditional roles from the RFC requirements, what a program director does, I do that, and then I am, it's kind of, tentacled out, I guess, into a lot of different areas. Um, over the years, because thankfully for the RSC requirements, I've been able to accumulate, I shouldn't say accumulate, hire um, associate program directors. You know, I've given each one kind of a realm, you know, the APD in charge of ambulatory, the APD in charge of PSQI, patient safety and quality improvement, you know, another APD more in charge of the inpatient unit and everything, and an APD in charge of everything we do with the VA. And what that is allowed is because there's so many pieces to being a program director and associate chair, they've been able to, I guess also part of faculty development, take on those areas, start to call them their own, and develop programs and not feel they have to, it's like what you were saying about the team before, not call me all the time to say, what should I do now? Um, but I get involved a lot more in finance than I did in the early years. You know, it's almost like the more you do, the more you have to do in the various layers of the hospital, the tentacles, it's tentacles. So what was your earliest leadership experience, would you say? I came here, I finished my residency in 83 and came here in 83, very clueless about what I wanted to do with myself. I took a job in um, the urgent care area at the VA, 
when there were no emergency medicine residencies. I mean, they were just really in their earliest years. Um, and someone said to me, gee, you know, we have a medical consultation service at the university hospital, and the residents are roaming the hospital doing consults without clear supervision. Do you think you can do this and kind of supervise this and figure out what it is? So back in the day, this was shortly, not that many years after Lee Goldman did his Goldman criteria for preoperative risk assessment. I'm thinking, I don't know how to preop something. You know, I haven't gone through residency. I hadn't done. It wasn't a thing like it is now, it where you can score it and you have numbers and you know we have a whole formal thing. So I started. So I said, this is great. So I started, you know, with lectures for the residents, and then of course handouts. We barely had computers back then, right? You know, everything was DOS based. So I started doing that, and as as this thing developed. It actually turned into a book and running the medical consultation service where I ended up attending for 12 months a year. People said, my God, you're bringing in a lot of money. They didn't realize that, gee, if you attended and you saw all these consults, you would have income. I know that sounds very obvious right now. But they said, gee, you're a brand new faculty. You're bringing in all this money. How the heck did... Well, I said, you attend for 12 months a year. This is what happens. Mm -hmm. So all these lectures and things turned into a book. You know, the Lang, one of the Lang series books on perioperative medical management. And we ran two editions of that. I ran two, maybe three regional courses in perioperative risk assessment. So we had maybe 125 physicians from the community who would come in for CME credit, you know. And I would have my friends, hey, can you talk about cardiology? Can you talk about POEM? You know, can you talk about, you know, the, the what, what do you need to worry about in an orthopedic patient? It's funny, we had a whole section on the ophthalmology patient, which today is like totally irrelevant because they don't even need a pre-op. But that was probably my first leadership thing. And, and that, those running the medical consult service, both from a teaching point of view, generating two books out of it, a couple of regional courses, you know, that was, yeah. But it was funny when they said, it, they said to me, gee, can you run this one? I said, I don't even know what a pre-op is. And I said, well, we can send you somewhere. So they sent me to two courses. They sent me to Jefferson. Do you know Gino Murley? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Gino was running a course, and I said, gee, maybe I'll go there, see one, do one, teach one. Mm -hmm. and, you know, stayed friends with him over those many years, and they sent me to a teaching course at Harvard on how to teach, mm -hmm. which was really interesting. Um, yeah. You know, I assumed a lot of internal medicine people would be there, and there were people who were teaching anatomy and biochemistry and radio. It was a whole mix of different kinds of teachers. So it, it was in. So they gave me some good faculty development early on, mm -hmm. but that was by running the medical consult service, which I did for many years, and finally had to give it up as I took on more other things to do. But that was my first love. And what yeah. would you say were some of your earliest leadership lessons? And not necessarily in, in the MedCon world. It could have been program directing or anything else. Earliest lessons. Hmm. I know some themes I always say to my APDs and chief residents. You know, you need to collaborate. You need to have a collaborative role with the people you work with and have stakeholders around the table when either you're trying to think, develop, or do something. And I think whether that goes back to when I was doing HRSA grants and we would collaborate 
and making, you know, getting success out of that, or whether, you know, we're having issues with the MICU, you know, you have to have the right people around the table. Um, you know, never, whenever we leave somebody out and you try and actuate something you, and it doesn't work, you realize you were missing something along the way. I don't know if it's, I'm trying to think if there's, I, I, I believe very strongly in collaboration and not being the kind of leader that just says, okay, this is how we're going to do it, so go, go take care of it. Do it. You know? Hmm. And if you were along those lines, if you were going to encapsulate your leadership style into hmm. one or maybe two words, what, what, how would you, what words would you I probably should have read those old essays. I would have had an answer. Oh, um, no. I like to think that, I go back to collaboration. I, I like to think that I try to listen I still have a goal in mind. I mean, I still have an idea of where I'm going. Collaboration doesn't mean we only take in what other people say, and that's what we're going to do. But I found that when we when we collaborate and the right voices are at the table, we're stronger than if we had done it ourselves. Okay, can I give you a very recent example? Our continuity clinic, we have not gone to the X plus Y system. I think we will cave and finally go to that, but at the moment we're not. So we were trying to think, how do we jumpstart our interns in continuity clinic? And so about two weeks ago, I did a non-collaborative move. (laughs) And I said, we have got to take one of their two-week electives and call it academic GIM. And in those two weeks, they go heavy to clinic early in the year. You know, do it within the first four or five months. In the mornings, they can do PSQI. They can do some modules from the Yale curriculum, you know, we would have required reading lists, we would do some sim sessions in our, you know, um, in our center where they can, you know, get better at central lines, and, you know, just all kinds of things that we have such trouble finding a place for, because there's no clear home to do that, and I said, you know, well, look, I want to do this kind of structure, and I was sitting with my chiefs and APDs, and all of a sudden they came up with all these ideas how to fill the morning, we could do this, we, you know, they came up with the, oh, let's do the sim sessions, and you know, we've never had a place to do the IHI modules, you know, they have to do it kind of on their own time when they have time, they'd have to do it within these two weeks. So, you know, I like the idea where you can set a tone and a goal, and then in a kind of collaborative sense, they all came up with fabulous ideas, which I don't, I'm going to come up with all those ideas on my own. Mm-hmm. And we're going to launch that in July. So somewhere between kind of the end of July and Thanksgiving, every intern, because we front-loaded this rotation, will have done this rotation. So help to jumpstart them, mm-hmm. you know, into doing, um, be better at doing their ambulatory. Um, and when I had my her- my string of four or how many HRSA grants, it was only by collaborating with my colleague in pediatrics mm. that that happened. She was the idea person, and I was great at budgets mm. and also ideas. But between the two of us, we were able to write these grants and zing them every time. So mm. I, I, I think, yeah. Work, I think working with us, I've seen, and this is just as a side, you know, you, you know leaders where they're autocratic do this, get it done. You know, they don't want to hear what you have to say. I never want to be that. What's your favorite part of your job? My residence. That's an easy answer. Absolutely, without question. You know, when you're in a job like this for a long time, there are always ups and downs. You have days where you wonder, did I really have to come to work today, and this is frustrating, or that's frustrating, or this person's giving me a hard time. 
And if I watch my residents be successful in the match, you know, graduation is next next what, no week from Wednesday. You know, we watch them be successful in the end. I know that sounds like weirdly all true. You know, they're successful. I'm happy. But deep down, that's really true. You know, over the years, you know, when you've been in a job for a while, people say, oh, you want to look at this position, that position. We need a chair at a community hospital, and this and that. And, you know, I kind of look, see, but not really actuated. And I remember with one that they kept calling me, you need to interview, we need you to come, we could use you, you know, and all this, all this. And the next day, one of my residents did their senior talk. And all our seniors do a 45-minute formal didactic presentation along with a manuscript. It's a requirement of their senior year. And this person knocked it out of the park. And I said, why do I want to leave this? You know, even though they said I would get more money, I could leave every day at noon, which I didn't really believe. Right. You know, it, it's, it's without, without a shadow of the doubt, it, a doubt, it's really working with the residents. Mm -hmm. And I would probably say also with that is working with my APDs. I love my APDs. You know, I've, I've kind of groomed them since they were residents and chiefs. Um, they're wonderful people. They help prop me up when I'm not at my best, and they help me shine when I am. And they come up with great ideas, and it's because of them I also stay. What's your least favorite part of your job? Oh, sort of to, let me see how many things. Let me see how many things I can see. Um, would it be weird to say recruitment? You know, it is the the things that recur cyclically that are so onerous to take care of. Updating ads. If, when I think about going through another recruitment season and bringing through 350 or 400 people and doing a speech twice a week, it's hard to do that and stay on your... It's like, you know, you're it's doing a Broadway show every day and twice on Wednesdays and Saturdays. It's I think it's hard to do... To look ahead to that season at the number of applications, going through it meticulously, finding... You know, we, we do well in the match. But there's so much you have to do, and I think the workload. I think the workload is huge, and there comes a point, usually in January, where I, I see no light outside. No, t there's not even a tunnel. So I think it's some of those recurrent jobs that I find difficult. I think the other things that have been very challenging lately have been the pressures from the hospital, whether it has to go with why can't you discharge before noon? Is it because I'm not orthopedics? Um, why, you know, they always seem to be telling us, admit them quicker, but now discharge them quicker. And it's, I think we've reached a point where our length of stay is short, so short. I said, unless I go to their house and admit and discharge them, it's not going to get any faster than what it's happening right now. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think some of those things are a bit frustrating. I understand where they're coming from and what they're, tr how, the metrics that are trying to meet. Mm -hmm. Um, that's so hard. I think the other thing is that the battles we have, what I like to call misaligned incentives. So you have somebody who's incentivized, let's say, for quick output out of the ER, throughput in the hospital, early discharges, and very good reasons why that needs to happen in terms of cost savings and efficiency and high-value care and everything else. But then it abuts the, the educational mission, right? They'll say to me, why do you have to have morning report? 
you really need a conference? I mean, you've heard this, right? Yeah, I, and I think it, after a while, it's like, you know, then just implode the residency and be done with it and, and go see how much your budget will be when you don't have residents mm-hmm. to care for all these patients. So, um, so I, I find that frustrating. I find that frustrating, the constant do it better, do it faster. Mm-hmm. Um. Don't quote me on all of that. What's the, <laughs> the biggest... You're, you're not in a void. I, I'm not I, in a void. I find it like... Are these common themes? Sometimes think they're in a void, but in fact, if you have this issue and I have this issue, we're trying to push us out of our. The only thing I worry about is not that anyone from my institution would read it, but I hate for them to publicly read Uh that they frustrate me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I trust you to put this. Yeah. 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 Well, Dr. Wilson said the CEO of the hospital was a blither. (laughs) Now. I'll leave that one. Yeah. What's the biggest mistake you've made in the leadership position, looking back on all those years of leading? Biggest mistake? Hmm. That's hard. Mm-hmm. Not that I haven't made mistakes, but I'm trying to think in context. Um, I think if I hired the wrong person, no. Sometimes a resident I think is going to be good is insane, mm-hmm. you know. But you know, we go back to the MSP and say, "What, what did we miss?" But that's not a, that's not the kind of mistake we're. Hmm. Wish this was multiple choice. I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, is there something you go back and perseverate on? Thinking about it, and you just sort of kick yourself and think, "God, I remember that eleven years ago when I." I mean, there's always things I wish I'd done better, and you're smarter later. Mm-hmm. See, I put mistake is really bad. Mistake is badness. Can I keep thinking? Yeah, yeah. All right, let me keep thinking. Not that I haven't made mistakes. I mean, obviously, I've made mistakes. Um, I find that. Maybe things that I, you know, maybe like anti, not acts of commission but omission maybe mm-hmm. what's an example of that I wish our ambulatory program was stronger mm-hmm. but you know we're trying to work on that it's very hard in the context yeah, of this hospital we have a lot of yeah. services mm-hmm. this that and the other it's hard to you know the clinic we haven't done the X plus Y which maybe that would be a I don't know do you do that in your program yeah. Next mm-hmm. I don't know if that would be a salvation. I always thought it was a silo thing, and you know we should teach people to multitask. Mm-hmm. And I feel as an ambulist, an ambulatory person, all we've done is fritter away at their outpatient mm-hmm. at the cost of inpatient. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think yeah, I think as a generalist, maybe to say that we don't. My biggest regret, maybe, to date, is that we don't have the ambulatory program that I wish we did to teach people outpatient and primary care. Um, Our clinics tend to be, you know, a lot of post-discharge kind of acute patients. You don't have, like I had today, you know, three three walking worried wells (laughs) who had lots of issues but nothing really serious. going on but I don't know I have to think about my biggest mistake those are like regret not regrets because we're still working on it mm-hmm. but it's also one of the things that but it's a self-awareness about what you need to do to your program to 
right, let me, I'll think about mistakes. I'll think about mistakes. I'll probably be dwelling for days and I'll email you. I said, I, fa- I figured one out. I, I have so suppressed it because it was such a bad mistake that I don't remember it anymore. Yeah, I found that uh, for a fair number of people, it's around personnel, either hiring the wrong person. I actually or was, I was going through. getting rid of the wrong person yeah. fast enough because I'm trying to be really. I actually didn't with the review of systems thinking. I was thinking, did I hire someone wrong? You know, I didn't once have the best APD, but then I got a better rate, but it wasn't such a big deal. So I don't consider it like a career mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, well, keep thinking. Of I'll keep like, thinking. You know. There's got to be. Um, I know there is, yeah. What do you look for when you are recruiting or hiring? Because you do hiring for your APDs and other positions, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. What are you looking for in your people that you want to be working with either in your residency or in your team your leadership team they have to want it they have to they have to really want to do education in a very deep sense you know if it's a t- add-on i need some money to cover me for this that or the other you know that's not the right person they have to really be interested in the overall welfare whether it's for medical students or for residents and their primary constituency is that learner group. Um, they have to be good to work with. They have to be fun. They have to be collaborative. They have to have a good sense of humor. They have to be somebody who is available, you can talk to, you can meet with, who I try my development with them, that when they come to meetings with me, I actually want them to have a written agenda that they write down. They come to me with what the meeting should consist of. I mean, I have ideas too, but... Each APD, I have a meeting with them, a personal meeting with them every two months, which includes what is their portfolio, what are they working on, what areas do they have, and it also includes their own development in academia. So they have to be goal-directed, deadline-directed. I once had an APD that didn't know how to spell deadline. You know, everything was late. Everything was late. This makes me, being late makes me insane makes me insane um but they have to you know if you have an assignment you know what it is there can be leeway but you have to get done what you're supposed to what you're supposed to get done um you know right now we're choosing our chief residents for a year from now um and i look for a lot of those same characteristics you know how do you work with others what is your approach to problem solving um what do you feel you personally bring to the position? You know, I'm looking for a lot of keywords. You know, a lot of my chiefs, they must have been talking to each other. So these chief candidates, we do an actual formal interview process. And uh, they, they are clearly talking to each other because almost each one of them says, I want to give back to the program. So it's interesting. People have said that in the past, but it was all of them this year. So they, so I think that, but that's really true of the APDs and anyone you hire is you, you become the face of the program. You need to like the residents. If you hate residents, this is the wrong job for you. And I tell my, they, the chief candidates will say, what do you want to see in a chief? I said, someone who doesn't start to hate the residents. Because once you hate your residents, you're, it's, it's all over. There will be days you hate them. That's okay. But it can't be a pervasive. You know, I even say to my staff here when I've interviewed, you know, the finalists for whatever staff position, I'll say to them, you are the face of medical education. We serve the residents and the students. Without them, none of us have a job. So we have to serve them appropriately. 
delivering curriculum, doing evaluation, being creative, innovative, whatever the whole panoply of things that we do. But we, our purpose is we are here to serve. So I even tell the person at the front desk who has to deal with everyone walking in the door, I need a battery for my beeper, I need a meal ticket, I need this or that. I said, all these little questions, you are there to serve. You are the service desk. You're the first face that they see. You can never be grumpy. You have to be glad to see them, even if that resident has come in 15 times and still can't figure out what to do or whatever their problem is. You are there to help them be successful. That's a great um, perspective. I think we're here to... That's why I said before, you know, my greatest joy is when when they're successful, which I know sounds... I hate parental metaphors. Hate parent, you know, to be say, oh, you're mothering or you're like a parent. But, you know, when you think about your children, a lot of the joy in your children is to watch them do things, you know, to watch them graduate, get married, have their own kid. You know, my eldest just had, that's why I wasn't at Aptum, you know, this past spring, my eldest, we just had our second grandchild. My second one is getting married in August. Wow. You know, when you see those things, that is that is joy beyond joy. Mm-hmm. And even though residents are not like your family, there is a joy to watch them be successful and to say at some point, not that I was instrumental in that success, but hopefully provided the foundation, the tools, the opportunities so that they can be successful. You know, one of the things I do when I do my feedback sessions with the residents, which, by the way, I've never relinquished that. I meet with all 90-something residents twice a year. Near, wow. And everything kills me, but whatever. <laughs> but I No, I, I've never given it up because some people, you know, I'm right in the midst of it. I'm, I'm probably two-thirds of the way through, and I do about 30 to 45 minutes a piece. And when it's letter-writing time for fellowship, it's a little bit more, but one of the things... I always believe in is reflective therapy, in a way. So I would say to you, what do you want to do? And then we figure out the way to get there. You know, I always, I don't like the faculty member that says, you're really smart. You should do dermatology. Why don't you do derm? You're AOA. You should do dermatology. As opposed to be saying, you know, you're a really smart medical student. You could do anything. What would you like to do? What interests you? Do you like procedures? Do you like continuity? Do you like critical care? Do you like pathology? Mm-hmm. You know, and I always think when people say, well, why don't you be like me? I think that's self-validating. That isn't necessary. So I rather, I rather ask, like when I meet with med students or residents, what, so what do you want to do? What do you like to do? Um, and in the end, I've really just said back to them what they already said. Mm-hmm. And they think they've come, they think I've helped them. But they've really come to well, their own conclusion. They've helped to their own conclusion. You've helped them get hold it, Yeah, in touch with themselves, yeah. yeah. So I, I very firmly believe in that. I, I really, when I hear people, you know, you've seen this on letters, you know. They'll write a letter. So I, conv- I tried to convince them to be a cardiologist. Oh, but they're going into blah, blah. Why does that need to be there? Mm-hmm. You know, you've seen this in letters of oh, recommendation. Yeah. Like it'll come into medicine. Maybe yeah. they have a peds or a surgery person. And I mean, maybe that's complimentary, but I also think that's a, um, why do you need to convince someone to be like yourself? That's a good question. What are your favorite, if you have any, what are your favorite interviewing questions? I have to go back into interview mode. Let me think. I only ask, I think I only have three or four questions. I have to roll the tape backwards. Let me think. 
what are you looking for in a program? That can, I do a 30-minute interview. What are you looking for in a program opens the door to what are they interested in? And how many interviews do you do in a day on your recruiting for 30 minutes at a time? Well, no, I don't do everybody. That's the thing. We, right, we, right. Do, we do everybody. We only do one interview, which is a, applicants I don't think are wild about. But I bring in about 25, 30 people twice a week. Mm-hmm. Remember, I'm on the I-95 corridor. This is a big you know, people are zooming up and down yeah. to the various programs. So um, I will do two interviews. I do two 30-minute interviews, but I pick who I'm going to interview. Mm-hmm. But, every, you know, they go all over campus to do their interviews. So I start with what do you want to get out of a program? Uh, no, what, what are you interested in? What are you looking for? So that gets into, you know, I want to be, I have to be in Baltimore, my significant other you know, works for the Department of Justice in D.C., and I want to be in Baltimore, Washington, or I'm looking for a program strong in a particular area, and then we can get into that area. Um, so that really, it lets me see how the conversation flows. Um, and now I'm forgetting my second question because I'm not in interview mode. The last question is, do you have any questions? But I do have a second one, which will come to me. But that t- if someone is a... can, And all this time I'm looking at how you communicate, can we have a conversation. I will pluck things out of their record to prove I read it. So I see you're a dancer. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe you actually danced with Alvin Ailey. Let's talk. You know, that's so cool. One of my daughters danced with Alvin Ailey. You know, whatever it is. So I try and bring something personal out of it. Um, Or if they don't mention something, I'll say, oh, I see you did a little research here. Is that something you're interested in or, or something like that? And I'm forgetting my second question. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. But then I'll say, do you have any other questions? That's 30 minutes. I can talk to anybody for an hour. I recall I I interviewed someone that came from a top-tier medical school, huge boards, all this stuff. And I have a clock. It's right. It's actually over there. So I usually put the applicant here so the clock is behind their head and I can watch the time. And I went through my three questions, and it was seven minutes into the interview. I said, oh, my God, we are in- the guy couldn't speak. There was nothing. Nothing to say for himself. Nothing. Huh. Like, you know, what are you looking for in a program? ABC. Anything else? No. It's okay. This, I remember thinking to myself, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do now for 27 minutes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but for most people, it's really just getting a feel. I don't do a behavioral interview. I don't ask them, what would you do if? What was your, you know, how, what was the worst situation you were in? How would you deal with this, that, and the other? I just really want to. <clears throat> and then you see if you can connect with them. You know, do they have the spirit of teamwork? Do they, are they looking for a program, you know, with a certain kind of resident, a certain feel to it, mm-hmm. you know? What is the greatest misperception about you that people have? Oh. Mm. I know what this is because someone I heard this yesterday. You heard about... Someone said something. Uh, yeah, yeah. So this is what comes up. They will view me as the bureaucrat of the RRC. That all I care about is duty hours. Or all I care about, I'm dealing with one subspecialist now that I work with. <laughs> you know, and and he's very mad at me. That way, I'm telling him ads has to be put in the question. He says it's a site visit coming up because it's a new it's a new sub 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 kind of specialty fellowship, and it's a, the the guy's coming in a week and a half, and 
his intransigence, you know, we're kind of fighting. He hasn't come through the five stages of Kubler-Ross to being a program director. He has not reached acceptance yet. Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest misconception is all I care about are the damn rules. Mm-hmm. Don't think all those rules. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'll come after them. You know, we had to do a big re- restructuring of our cancer center curriculum. Now it's perfect. We were having violations out to the wazoo with duty hours, and they didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Tell the residents, work harder, work faster, work. You know, and, you know, they finally realized. I said, here is the outcome data. They are in violation X percent of the time. This is unacceptable. We're going to cut the census, we're going to cut this, we're going to cut that, and then we will look at the outcome measures and go from there. And they, they, they go ballistic. I need to have a champion on the other side, and I do have someone in the cancer, don't say cancer center in there, but you know, I have a champion there. But everyone else thinks I'm a lunatic. In other words, they use other words too. But but I really do believe that a new fellowship director does go through the five stages. The first one is, there's no way I'm going to deal with this. You've got to be kidding that I have to do all this stuff. I said, where did you think this was? Com- where did you think your accreditation was coming from? You know. And so they go they go through a period of time of complaining. And I said, and then finally they'll say, does it make any difference if I complain about this? I said, no. I said, the speed limit on the Beltway is 55. If you exceed the speed limit, you will get a ticket. That's it. Four days off. It's four days off. Why do they get a day off? Because it's four days off. I said, do you want me to say the third time? Years ago, when the duty hours came out, was it early 2000s? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the head of the CCU came to me. It was all crazed that we were moving from Q3 to Q4 calls so we could accommodate, you know, the days off and all this other stuff. And he said to me, he said, am I going to win this argument? I said, no. I said, oh, okay, great, see ya. <laughs> he walked out. I said, fine. So I think the greatest misconception is the only thing is I care about the rules, and I don't care about the curriculum, the residents' welfare, how well they're trained. Oh, she cares more about the rules and whether they're actually competent. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I don't like when they say that. It's not who I am. Uh-huh. But that's okay. I can I can live with it. So what, what thing in, that you've done in your career, because you've obviously done a lot of things and mm-hmm. been in a lot of roles already here, um, what's the thing that you, single thing that you're most proud of? Can I just say program direct, residency program director? Is that too broad? Uh, well, more, you know, was there something in all those years of program directing that you kind of looked at? You know, it's on? really a continuum. You know, I started in 92. There were 88 total residents in this program, and now we have 140-ish hmm. residents in the program. And it has changed from... I'd like to believe a program that is much more academic, where the residents have opportunities to do research, um, where they get into strong fellowships, they get the jobs that they want, the curriculum is structured, there's appropriate milestone evaluations. I mean, it really is my greatest pride when I leave this job, tomorrow, (laughs) sometimes, you know, is that I have really 
created something very special. I really do. That it's not one thing. Mm-hmm. It's the whole the whole, the whole continuum. Because you know, as in anything, sometimes we went a certain way and said, Oh, that's not a good idea. We have to come back and it's not the right direction and you know, but I think if you looked at the big march forward, um, you see the see that pile there of rainbow colored books uh-huh. those are my senior talks all the way back to the 90s see how tiny the book is on the bottom left uh-huh. how thin yep. and how the uh-huh. books here on the right are thicker yep. you know it's a measure of the residents doing more being more erudite you know it's a process this is actually before we had computers but i keep making the books of their manuscripts uh-huh. nice. of course we have a lot of stuff online now too but i i think it's the whole pack i can't think of Mm-hmm. If I leave the program, I'm very proud of where it is. Mm-hmm. You know. So um, I think you answered this question somewhat earlier, but what what is the secret to being mm-hmm. a great mentor? Because you're obviously spending a yeah, lot, a lot of time, time doing, doing mentoring twice a year. I think. 90. <laughs> oh, you mentor for the residents too. I well, think anything, fellows, residents. I think, yeah, and I do a lot of faculty mentoring my APDs, and I'm on a bunch of mentoring committees. And yeah, I had one guy who I could also do this to. Who um, he said to me, "Is that all you do, Susan? Is mentor?" I thought I would. I thought I punch him. You know, it's someone again who thinks that it's all about R01 grants and and everything else. I think the key to men- mentoring is really two-pronged you know I, I mentioned before about this reflective therapy kind of approach like so what do you want what are you looking for but then I think that has to be put into a certain context there could be rules so in other words you've come and you're asking me you know I need some mentoring I want to make associate professor I want to make professor and a lot of that can be well, what are you interested in what are you doing how are you moving forward on that path but then there are going to be rules you need to do a b c d if you do a b c d you will get promoted how do we get to that point so i think there's two aspects when i meet with them now and they're applying for fellowships we obviously make sure that that is what they want to do that's the reflective piece so hopefully right now i'm meeting for the letters so they've decided yes i want to do gi or yes i want to do palm critical care and then we go over the pieces that are the rules what are your boards what are your clinical evaluations? What's your output sco- scholarly activity? You know, do have you done a case report, a chapter? Uh, do you have research that's ongoing? Have you presented at a regional ACP? Have you presented nationally? So I have some people who have done all of that, and they've done, there was one guy I met with who's applying palm critical care. He's got two or three net between chest and ATS. He's either got two or three abstracts. He's got one publication and two in the pipeline. He'll get a fellowship, you know, and his, his and he'll get a very good fellowship and his boards are good. Then I'll have somebody else. They may have all the wants and desires, and I'll look at it and I say, you know, I'm worried about this. Now I'm looking within the context. So these are the rules to get GI, which I believe is actually one of the hardest ones to get statistically. Um, not if you look at the NRMP data, but I think in my experience it's the hardest one to get. And I And I'll say, you know... I'm a little worried because this is what you need to get it, and you've got two out of three or one out of three. You know, how is that, how is that going to work? And then there's also the person that has the mixed portfolio, 
where they have a 208 on step one, then they get a 242 on step two, and they've also done a lot of research, but a lot of those fellowship directors are going to get stuck on step one. You know, and how is that going to play itself out? So I think the key to mentoring is to be a good listener, be reflective, show that you're supportive. You have to support their goals, but then you have to be able to direct within whatever the rules are, because you know the rules. You know, I do this also with medical students. I know where they're going to get an interview. And I tell them, in January, you have to tell me where you didn't get an interview so that I will know what program doesn't like us anymore, or if they've changed, new program director, they've changed their parameters. You know, I'm sure you've seen this. Every year I see, oh, why did, and I won't mention any names, and I've gone up to them and asked them and said, what the heck? What the heck happened? You didn't invite my people. I'm not going to invite your people. <laughs> you know, but I think the thing to mentoring is to listen, reflect, encapsulate it back, but then also give them very clear predictive models. You know, I say to, to say to someone, go ahead and apply in GI when you and your heart know there is no chance they're going to get it. You have to talk to them about this. You have to say, well, look, you need to apply to also a lot of community places. You need to broaden the number you're applying to because I'm worried whether you're going to get it. So I think you have to be able to look at that as well. So the context is important. Yeah, the rules. Who are one or two of your most important mentors? Oh, one of my, well, I think really two people. Frank Kalia, C-A-L-I-A, was uh, a huge person in medical education here. He was the first guy to hire me. He was interim chair three times. Every time we had a new chair, he would be interim chair and finally was chair, you know, at the end of his career. He was the one who said to me, Susan, could you please leave the VA and come down here and run the MedCon service? Because I think you do a good job with that. Susan, could you run our ambulatory program? Susan, I want you to chair the clinical years committee for the School of Medicine. I want you to chair the curriculum committee, which is the big curriculum committee for the school. He always... He always said, you, I need you to do this. You need to do this. This is good for you. I probably singularly and beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I remember when I was running ambulatory for nine years before I became program director, and he was, he was ranking. Now, he had a pencil and a bunch of manila folders. You know, couldn't do emails. I don't know. You know, very old school. And he said, Susan, watch me because you're going to do this soon. I remember thinking, there's no way in heck that I am going to do what you're doing because I don't even understand what you're doing. Um, but he was right. So I would say he is, and I think the other person would be uh, William Henrich, um, who is now the president at UT San Antonio. I guess he's called the president. Uh, he was our chairman for about nine years. Um, came from UT Southwestern, then went to San Antonio to be dean, and within a few years became the president of the university, I guess, down there. He has a... I'll get all emotional because him leaving was almost like breaking up with someone. I'm still distraught over it when he left here to go there. He, He had a humanism and caring for others that, like, I've never seen. He could connect... He could meet you the first time, and it would be like he, you were a long-lost friend. He could, he would talk to the applicants and almost make. Them, he would talk about what it means to be a physician 
as opposed to how residency makes you a doctor and makes you a physician, not just a mechanic of, you know, H&Ps and how you would connect with patients even though there's nothing else for you to give them out of your toolbox, you're still their doctor. The applicants would start crying. He would—he was renowned on the interview trail as making the applicants cry during his talk because he would just dig into their deepest desires of why they wanted to do what they wanted to do. Um, just a wonderful role model. He would—he would have these stories. He would tell. He was a nef- is a nephrologist, and he would talk about. And I and I keep this in mind still today. He would tell the story of somebody who walks a tightrope. He says, if you look at somebody that's walking on this little thing, they don't look at their feet. They look at the horizon. And he would say, when you're faced with a difficult issue and a lot of noise and things going on, and this goes back to the love of the residency, mm-hmm. why do you do what you do despite you know, the RRC things and the, the recruitment and all the other noise? Keep your eyes on that horizon and remember why you're doing what you're doing. Because the minute you look down, even though you have to be aware of details, you'll be thrown off your balance. Oh, it's beautiful. You know, the other story he tells, and I remember this. He said when he was a nephrology fellow, he was working for, what was his name? Selden was the big guy at UT Southwestern. Sounds familiar. Something like that. He was also a nephrologist. So he was a lab, he was the lab part of his nephrology fellowship or whatever, or maybe he was a postdoc or something. He's sitting out there and he was had to go in there and tell him about some experiment that had been a catastrophe. So he could hear his chairman in there and whatever hire he had worked very hard to get a recruitment faculty member, something had fallen through and he could hear he was angry, he was pissed off, you know, and, and he's sitting there thinking, to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die because I have to now go in and tell him that whatever he was doing was also a catastrophe. So finally when it was his chance to go into the office it was as though the chairman had flipped a switch the focus was on him let's see what we can do to make this work and I don't think Bill Henrich had to be taught how to be humanistic and understanding but I think of that sometime when I'm really upset about something and I want to, you know, whatever has happened and I'm upset for whatever reason and then I have to turn to something else to not bring the frustration of whatever the last minute brought to the next person who's, who's with you especially if it's a mentee or a resident and I, I remember that story I remember that story. So Frank Kalia gave me all my opportunities and for years and decades said, do this, do this, you need to do this. Um, he was program director for 18 years. And when I passed, passed the 18-year mark, I said, hey, Frank, I beat you. He said, it's not possible. I said, yes, Frank. He said, no. I said, and I had to give him the years because he didn't quite believe me that wow. I had I had uh-huh. done it longer. But but Bill Henrich, for his leadership, his warmth, I mean, oh, when he told me he was going to leave, I was, I still have, like I said, I'll just tell you a funny side story, which is, so they call me from UT Southwestern, I guess, to do their due diligence and, you know, for a reference or whatever. So some big guy called me when he was going to be dean. And they knew him very well at this point. So I'm telling him all the wonderful things. And I get to the end and I said, so you want to know about the felonies? And there was like this dead silence. 
And he goes, what? And I said, I just had to say that because we, I don't want him to go. So I thought if I talked about some felony convictions, you might not offer him the job. So. Yeah, and I told Bill Henry I did that, and he looked at me and said, you, you did what? I said, it was a joke. He says, did they? But no, it was a joke. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so there's this, um, in our last couple of minutes here, yes. um, uh, there's this, what I call a sort of a syndrome where, you know, physicians go into medicine to help people and to be nice to people and to prop mm-hmm. them up and heal them and so forth. And sometimes when they get into leadership roles, that becomes sort of a conflict in terms of having to make the tough decisions and be the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that you run into that much? And how do you deal with it if you do? So to be the bad guy sort administratively, of be, be you mean? Nice guy or nice woman the, syndrome where you, you, you don't have to you be don't the bad guy. I have to, yeah. I think where this this comes up is probably when we have a resident with a problem, mm-hmm. you know, academic, professional, um, substance abuse, which is a complete sidebar. Is I think it's worse than it used to be. Mm-hmm. It used to be so isolated there'd be a decade between each event, and mm-hmm. just seems to be a change. I, anyway, I think that um, I think you have to be firm. You have to be fair. I didn't say this before in some of the questions, but I think in another very important part of our job, and I tell this to my chief residents, whatever decision you make, it must be fair. What you do for A, you must do for B, and you can't favor one person over the other. So I think if some, I think the tough decisions are the more negative. I don't even know if it's really negative, but the tougher decisions are when someone is not meeting your expect my expectations, whether it's the expectations of their employment or their job, such as an associate program director or a fellowship director, um, or whether a student or a resident is having problems, I think you have to be very clear. Um, you cannot be vague. You have to. I always tell people when you're giving feedback, it has to be behavioral. I can't say to you, Paul, could you prioritize a little better? What the heck does that mean? I got. I have to go learn to prioritize. What does that mean? We all know we need to prioritize, but what does that mean? You have to. You know. You have to be efficient. You know. Have to know what to attack first. How do I know what to attack first? It has to be broken up into its its pieces. Um, and I think sometimes I have to look at a resident and say, you know, you are not meeting your milestones right now that I expect you at this point in time. How do we make that happen? How do you think we should make that happen? So I, you know, you know, we've had to fire people over the years, you know, in 20-something years, or not renew an occasional contract. I mean, obviously, it's a very rare occurrence, but it's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, are those the tough things you're talking about? Yeah, or? Uh, precisely. Yeah. 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 Um, so what uh, advice would you have for a young and up-and-coming <laughs> leader um, who, you know, thinking of all the people you meet through APTM and CDIM and other organizations, ACP, <laughs> Not look at your feet. Not look at your feet. (laughs) (laughs) You mean advice to taking on a new career? Or just sort of negotiating leadership. Sort of a a broad question. Yeah, it is. You know, and not just because you're speaking from AIM and APTM and, you know, all these other, other areas, but APTM to me has been a lifesaver. 
and apps I have missed in all my years two meetings. One, because a cousin turned 90 and I had to take my 92-year-old mother to the birthday party <laughs> and I had to go. And this past spring, because my grandson was born, um, I went to pre-courses for decades and it was like a mini fellowship. Um, so I think my advice on a national scale is you have got to embrace Aptum as a place not just to go hang out, but and it sounds so, I don't know what I want, so routine to say, well, oh, you network and you meet people, but I think that is the absolute essence of helping you develop your leadership skills to go to workshops. I tell my team, everyone has to come back with three ideas. And it could be how to make a better bagel for morning report. It could be something dumb and mundane, or it could be, oh, my God, I didn't realize we could do something else. Come back with three ideas, you know, that, that'll make our program better. Um, so I think that I think that's very important. And I think you have to have good collaboration both at your level, lateral lateral mentoring I think is exceedingly important. So my colleague in pediatrics, we were lateral mentors for a very, very long time. Um, and I would go to her and say, what am I going to do with this? How would you handle this? You've got to have someone locally you can talk to one-on-one. -on -one. I think that's essential. And in medicine, because we usually have the largest program, it's kind of hard to talk to someone who has, you know, six residents. You know, so whether it's surgical or family or peds, but somebody who's dealing with that, I think. So I think on a national level, embracing Aptum is, is absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. um, to learn to speak the language if you haven't already learned to speak it well enough to understand the RSC and how it works really to our benefit, even though at times it will seem difficult, in the end, I think it has helped me do things that I never could have done by myself. We would still be Q3 in the CCU. Because I wasn't able to say, you know what, it's the rule. And that's the end of the discussion. Um, Any other um, kind of final words of wisdom? You don't have to have any, but you've given me lots of great things here. Yeah. No, also to add to what do you say to a young program director is is really to con to always find joy in what you're doing. You know, like I said before, the chief resident that starts to hate residents by October is not going to go well for the rest of the year. You know, if they're already pissed off at them for whatever, oh, this person is always nagging me for this, and why do I always have to do this and that? You you have, to, and I think going back to what Bill Henrich said, you have to keep your eye on the horizon, that your goal is really that your trainees, whether they're residents or medical students, need to meet the goals that they value, and you need to help them be successful. And I know that sounds, I don't want to sound mushy and altruistic. Mm -hmm. You know, and it sounds like, well, that's all you care about. But I really think that's the job we have. Mm -hmm. I, really, I really do believe that. So if you're in this for other, some other self-serving purpose, and, oh, I'm just going to do this for a few years until I get another grant or until I do that, you're in the wrong job. You know, you have to really live and breathe it um, and want to make your trainees better. And I think then if you want to do that and then you watch them, 
You watch the program get better. You watch you, you innovate something, it fails. You innovate something, it's successful. And you keep building on those successes. And I think that's very personally satisfying.